Hello, welcome to LAMP, the Life and Math Podcast, where I shine a light on mathematicians and the work they do, as well as on pathways to success and happiness in life. Please visit lifeandmath.com to find about all that's happening at Life and Math. Enjoy the interview. Hello, welcome to the Life and Math Podcast, where I shine a light on mathematicians and the work they do. Today, my guest is Dr. Alicia Prieto. She's a professor of mathematics at Youngstown State University, which makes her a penguin. Um, she got her PhD from the University of Texas at Arlington. Dr. Prieto, thank you for joining me. Thank you for the invitation. This is such an honor. Oh, well, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I will say yes, it's a great honor, I must say. The people <laughs> yes. are clamoring, beating down my doors for these interviews. They um, should. <laughs> well, um, this is our life half, so let, let's just dive right in. Um, the point is to sort of walk from high school to where you are now. And, and probably the bigger focus is really on the high school, college, and sort of immediate post-college, because the goal is to give students a picture of how your path went and, and to help them learn things and just tell fun stories. So walk, take us back to high school and, and where were you and what was life like? I have to take you a little bit before high school. because No problem. Um, uh, I'm from Mexico. I grew up in Mexico. And when I was in elementary school, I didn't really like math. So that's important. I think uh, people think that you always been good at math or you always like math. And I was not specifically because I sometimes I knew the answer, but I couldn't explain why. And sometimes my teachers would have the wrong answer and I couldn't debate with them why. So I remember this, there was a, in fifth grade, there was a problem where it like, I don't even remember the problem, but at some point it turned out to be that something was three minutes and uh, three and a half minutes. And my teacher was saying, yeah, that's three minutes and 50 seconds. And I was like, no, but I couldn't explain to her why, right? Like, I'm just like, no. And I was get, getting really angry, like, but I just, I just couldn't say, this is why it's not true. I'm, I'm just like, no, it's not true. <laughs> like something in myself tells me it's not true. So I didn't think I was good at math. Um, mm. And in Mexico, after sixth grade, you go to middle school, like secundaria. So while I was transitioning, because I was also like, for people that know me, this is like really shocking, but I was incredibly shy. Like I could not talk to people that I didn't know, like, hmm. like, like very, 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 very shy. So my mom thought we should get her into this like summer bridge program that will uh, help her with the math, but also like help her meet some people because she's never gonna talk to anybody. <laughs> and, and so I went to that program and I did make some friends and me and my friends were really loud. Um, and then the, the teacher who was um, a mathematician, he was, got really annoyed with the group and said, you guys cannot leave until you finish this problem and gave us like a really cool puzzle problem. I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, I, I mean, it was like so interesting, right? So I remember solving it and solving it fast. And he told me like, how do you solve it? And I was like, well, I, I, this is what I did. I was lazy. I didn't want to check all the cases. So this is how I thought about it. And this is what I got. And you really like that answer. And he said, you need to come to the math club. And I was like, that sounds like I'm not going to make a lot of friends. Like, like my mom's goal was you need to make a lot of friends. And you, and she's always just educated, very old, old school Mexican. So I was going to school to meet a man so that I could get married and have children, right? And going to the math club did not seem like a place where like girls go to meet husbands, right? So, so I thought like, nah, that does not seem like what I want to do. But then I started going and it was like so cool because I didn't think I was good at math also because it's a lot of memorizing before that, right? You got to memorize the tables, which I was so terrible at. Like when people asked me to multiply three times five when I was little, I would just put them in little rows and put the fives in like three rows and then I would count them. And then because I could not memorize three times five fifteen, like, but I could see it and then I could count them really quickly, which I don't know. So uh, when in the math club, there were all these like puzzle stuff. And at the end of that year, which is seventh grade, he told me to go to the state Olympic uh, Olympia uh, competition. And in Mexico, that in Jalisco, which was uh, the state I grew up in, that means a five question exam that lasts four and a half hours. And they're all big puzzle, open-ended questions. And that's, I remember- That's standard, right? I mean, in general, for the math Olympiad, they yeah. are something like, I mean, that's not just the Mexico so this thing. this one is five, yeah. So this one is five instead of three problems. And this is okay. the state one, not the like the national one. Yeah, so you're sort of working. So for people who aren't familiar with math Olympiad, because it actually hasn't come up in any of our other interviews so far. Um, so 
you know, this is international competition and it's, it's sort of like the Olympics, right? You can, each, each country has their teams. And so each country organizes its own way to sort of try out or work your way up to be on the team. So here, Dr. Prieto is describing, you know, in Mexico, okay, you start at the state level and you, I assume if you make that, you can compete at the national level. And if you win, then you can go up to the, the national level and you can go compete against people all over the world. Yes. And normally the age that you do this is in your last two years of high school, maybe, mm-hmm. but I was in seventh grade. And I went to that competition. I opened, remember opening the, the exam and thinking like, there's no way, I cannot do any of this. But I also remember that somebody said that they had chips, <laughs> snack and a sandwich. And I was always like a chubby girl, but my mom was really like, she, I mean, again, chubby girls don't help get husbands, right? So she never gave us chips or cookies or anything like that. And there was like a promise of chips and cookies. So I was like, okay, if I leave right now, I'm not gonna get the chips and the cookies. So this is what I'm thinking during my man Olympic competition. Like, okay, I might as well stay. And then I started saying- Actually, wait, can I, can I pause you for a second? Because yeah. I actually think there's a really important, uh, my role here basically is to interrupt my guests constantly and say I things think that I think it. are good points. So yes. I'm sorry that I'll keep interrupting. You should do um, it. Yes, we're good. But I actually think that uncovers an important principle, which is you need things to motivate you. So, so people sometimes get into these, these mindsets of, doing stuff because they think they have to. And I don't want to downplay that. There's a very real role for duty in life and like actually fulfilling obligations. And there's times I've talked a bunch about having to grind things out, but also there's on the flip side, a really important need to get hungry about things. And I use that word intentionally just because it's a nice pun on what you said, but, but I mean it both on not so much on the physical level, but find things that motivate you, that make you want to do something. And here it can be silly. Like for me, as silly as it is, like I'm competitive and I like to find silly little challenges and and it helps me sometimes to feel like someone, or oftentimes in my case, I'm a mathematician, something is telling me I can't do it. As silly as it is, for whatever reason, if I shift into that mindset, I get hungry to attack my problem. Like I'm going to prove you wrong. Like I can do this. And and here it's as silly as you wanted some chips and it's, that's a small scale version because this, this works big scale and small scale. Like you got a challenge in the next two hours. Hey, can you find something that makes you want to do it? As silly as it might be, go do it. No, and I always think about that because I think like, I think that in this kind of Mount Olympia problem, like you, a lot of people open up the exam and they say, I can't do this. Like the, the, the problems don't make any sense when you just read them, right? Like you got to like sit with them and they got to simmer, like good math problems, right? But at that point you open them up and you're like, I can't do, and I remember looking at many people just opening them up, reading them, putting the, the envelope back in the envelope and leaving. Cause this is like, a, it was like five, 600 students, right? And they're only gonna choose 16 first places. So you're competing against a lot of people and they're really, really good. So a lot of people just did that, right? So I was like, okay, I'll stay. And I started drawing things. And then I was like, okay, I might as well try one of these things. And one of them was about a little game. And I was like, I can play that game. And then I like, I didn't know you had to explain things. I mean, I did because my trainer had said that, but I didn't know how to explain things. So I just like wrote a little bit of things and I put up, put up some drawings. So at the end, when um, my room, I was also super lucky that my room was almost the last to get the food. Because if I had been the first one, I would have eaten the food and left. <laughs> but I was waiting for that food. So they wait like the first hour, that is the question hour. And then they started giving the food. So by hour number two, I got my food. And I was like, okay, I, I like scribble things on three problems and I can get out. So I just left with my food. And my trainer saw me coming out, that same guy that gave me the, the problem, uh, Cesar Octavio. who's like a great guy in Mexico and he's very well known on the Mad Olympiads. Um, and he sees me with the food, with the food and, told, and tells me, what did you do? Why did you leave? And I was like, because I have food now. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, what was the purpose of me coming? Because I made the team for my, for my middle school just because nobody else wanted to go. So it wasn't like I made the team or anything. I, I wanted the food. So I ate my thing. And then two weeks later, I find out I won first place, <laughs> which is ridiculous. And it's me. You have to go for training then the whole entire summer. Um, with another like 15 people that got first prize and they're all in their last or second to last uh, year in high school. And then me in seventh grade. I didn't even know algebra. So every time, like, and I was also really childish, right? And I was like, I always like try to make people angry. So like my, my, like the trainers would like put 
an equation and I was like, no, if it has if it has letters on it, I'm not even gonna pay attention to it. So they had they were so patient with me and I just they had to put little like houses or little trees or little like flowers or a little ball instead of an X. And then I could do it. Then it was like simple. It was one of those like Facebook things that you see, you know, on social media mm -hmm. with the mm -hmm. hamburgers and stuff. I could do those. Those are fine. But as soon as you put an X on it, I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. That's really too hard. So they put up with all my my stuff. And and little by little, I was able to learn things. And then I got eliminated. Let, let me pause you there because yep. that's another, again, I just chime in with, with points yeah. that I think are important. But I consider something like that friction. And a lot of times people won't, they quit at a little bit of friction instead of sort of finding a way around it. Or it's just a small scale obstacle. That's not a deeply ingrained obstacle. That's not like saying you can't do it. So you need to find just a little change and all of a sudden you can do it. Like, so don't let in your life, little things like that stop you when you try to be creative. And, and I think that's a sort of mindset that I, I, I want to communicate to students who often can feel beat down or I don't know, like have fun with stuff, find, find clever ways around. Like if, if for you drawing little hearts or little flowers or hamburgers or whatever the heck it may be, instead of X's like changes this from being dry and abstract to something you get your hands on then go do it. Like, like this is a, a constructive way to attack things. Um, yeah. And, and this is something that I use as a teacher now. Like I try to do that to my students. Like when they don't, when they don't like something, like put it in a way that they do like it. Like, you know, in math is really, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be an X, right? It's an X because somebody decided that letters, right? But it might as well have been a bird. Like, you know, it might have well been whatever. So yes. Yeah. So, and actually the bigger point there is get to know yourself. Like yes. you can't, so, so don't just go through and say, I got to do things the way others do it. Like the process of living and maturing is getting one part of it is increasingly learning about yourself to figure yep. out for you what works. Like you have to understand and, and get some sort of sense of when things aren't working because you might need to do something else versus when things aren't working just because you need to shift something and it needs to be different for you. Um, Cause that's how you'll be efficient. Like eventually you got to function as an adult and you got to figure out how you work best. Yep. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So I, after that, I was in, in the Mad Olympias for the next five years of my, until, until 12th grade. Um, but I got like, I don't even want to say famous, but like I got famous on the Mad Olympian world because nobody has ever had ever won that young. Right. Like, people wouldn't even spend time training students that young because they didn't know algebra. And that was like the, the, you wouldn't even go to math trainings unless students had already gone through one or algebra one and two. Right. So yeah. Yeah. My, my trainer back then after I did that became like, oh, students can do everything. Like you just don't need to tell them that it's algebra, right? They, they can do these things. So now they have trainings for elementary school kids now back in my state. And now there's been most of the kids that now have been able to win good medals for Mexico have been trained from very young age because that opened it up by accident of like a kid there waiting for her chips <laughs> that it can be done if you you know if you don't put the barriers of no you cannot do it unless you know this right like so yeah well and I think that's important because and actually this this has not come up I don't think at all in any of the interviews so the idea that it's about intuitive things a lot of times like yeah. what, the trouble is in math you take intuitive notions and then you try to make them rigorous. But yes. when we teach it, a lot of times what happens is the rigor gets taught first yes. and it's this sort of edifice or this wall and you haven't given students a chance to first understand what's underneath it. And I can think about really advanced stuff where the idea is so simple, but but like I think about Bonnock space and like yes. there's all these complexing things, but really you're just trying to measure the size of things. You're yes. saying like there's, there's this thing called a norm and it, it just satisfies notions of size. And, and then when you get sort of just some basic intuitives, then you can sort of derive the formalism. But even when you're working, like you're never working based off the formalism. You're working off of sort of the intuitive ideas yes. under it. I don't work in, in formalism. I work in intuitive ideas. Yes. And then I make sure that the formalism is okay. Yes. Um, yes. And people yes. don't see that. Um, and I think with young students, what you're describing with yourself, you know, it's a, it would be a shame if they get turned away because they have great intuition, yep. but the formalism gets in the way. So that's great. This is a fabulous thing to have happened because- Yeah, yeah, no, I, I was very lucky to have really good trainers and to have really good, and the, the team, like the first two years I didn't make it to the national team because they cut it from 16 to six, only six go and represent each state. Um, but the third year I did make it. 
Um, and when I made it, what they all, because of these like young kids can do things, they decided also that they were going to start admitting second places on the national, uh, on the, at the national, um, at the national competition, anybody that got second place but could go one more year, so that was young enough to go one more year, were, were, were going to be allowed to come to the trainings without being allowed to go to the International Mad Olympiads or make the team just so that they would learn. So yes, I got you get that. the experience. Yes. So my first year, um, I went representing my state um, and I was like the worst on the team. Like, no, because <laughs> I also like, I feel like I've always had like the imposter syndrome. But it always like weighed heavy when you're like the youngest, one of the few women. And I also have the thing about, so again, I've told a little bit about my mom and I love my mom, but she has things, right? I was not able to do mad homework until I finished my uh, womenly duties. So I had to clean and do things before I could get my homework done because that's not gonna help me achieve the goal, the getting married and the, the kids, right? So, yeah. um, so, I, I felt like I was doing too much. Like I, I also had to go to the basketball team and do all of this other stuff that I enjoyed, but that felt like other, other kids were just doing math. They were doing school and they were doing math. Now I'm grateful that I got to do the other stuff. Like yeah. I'm, I, yeah, I'm really grateful that I had a very well-rounded life. I, I am. But back then it was very frustrating because I think I was, I felt like it was a unfair competition. They had all this time to think about math and do math. And I was not as good in my head and I had to do basketball and I had to do other things. And I had to, uh, my mom made me go to, <laughs> this is really ridiculous, but my mom made me go to quinceañeras parties because I've always been somebody that goes to bed super early. Uh-huh. <laughs> and like uh, quinceañeras parties lasted like one or two in the morning. And I just didn't want to be there. I wanted to be home and sleeping. So my mom was like, no, go, your friends are, and I was like, okay. So she would not allow me to come home before midnight. So I was outside at 11. <laughs> just that, I just That's hilarious. No, I'm serious. I'm not most, parents, most parents are saying, you got to be back by this time. This is the opposite. You yes. you cannot come home yes. until this time. Yes, because my mom really wanted me. Like, again, she she put me in this uh, bridge program to socialize. And all I did was become more nerdy and mad, which is like it backfired for her. And now I don't want to go to any quinceañeras because I want to get early and like do more math. <laughs> And she's like, no, go, like wear makeup. You cannot come before midnight. And I'm outside my house at 1130, asleep on the street, waiting to be midnight so that I can come in. Like that's how bad it got. But, um, but anyways, um, the point is uh, I did make it to that national team, well, to the national trainings as a second place on my third year. And that was really hard because it was on the training, the group was 30 people. And there were 29 men and me. Mm-hmm. And that was like tough. Um, but they were older. At this point, you're what? Maybe a first year in high school or like? I'm a first year in high school. I was older, but I was one of the youngest. No, no, but they're older. That's what I mean. They're all oh, yeah. like, they're, they're three or four years older than you. And yeah. there's a big difference between a 13, 14 year old and a 17 year old or something like that. I was going to say also, I'm, I was old in my high school. Like okay. um, while, I was, while I was growing up, my teachers kept wanting to put me one grade ahead, but my mom never wanted me to be the older, the youngest on the grade. So she mm. kept holding me back. And then when I was in third grade, I switched from a school that spoke only Spanish to a school that spoke half English, half Spanish. Mm. And for some reason, the teacher thought, well, if she just repeats third grade, that would be fine. I mean, I don't know how that would be fine because even if it was the same material, it was in a language I could not understand anything at. But um, I did okay, but like, uh, I was the oldest kid forever, right? Like I graduated uh, high school at uh, 19 hmm. and I turned 20 in November and I graduated in, in like May. So like I was really, really old to be, hmm. yeah. So I was not much younger than them, hmm. but I was less advanced in math um, and they were all men. And that just like was very intimidating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and especially because you said you had the imposter syndrome already. And so it just, it doesn't but, make that any easier. Yes. yes. And I was also shy, right? Like, one of the things that is super, that I always tell my students that is super good is uh, go on the board and explain things, right? But that is so intimidating when you're really shy and when you're the only girl. Like I didn't want to even go to the board because they're going to look at me. Like I don't even want them looking at me and I'm in the board in front of everybody and I'm doing problems. And then they're, they're really nice guys and most of them are still my friends, but they would say stuff like, 
Alicia is the prettiest girl in the trainings and also the ugliest. <laughs> they would say things like, she's the smartest and the dumbest. <laughs> Fine. Or like, you know, like all sorts of like terrible, like funny, but like not so funny things. Um, so I didn't last too long on those trainings for the last, last two years. And I think people like my trainers and, and um, teammates and everybody were a lot very disappointed that I had been on trainings for so long and I hadn't made it to, to the IMO. So it was this huge pressure of like, dude, we put so much time on you. You have to make it to the team. Uh, and I didn't ever in my five years. So, but that, so that, that illustrates the importance of culture there, right? Yeah. It, it's, you can put the best external setup. Like I could construct the, and this isn't, this is mythical, but the theoretically perfect math curriculum, like mm -hmm. say I could do that. Let's pretend I could do it, which I can't, but, mm -hmm. and I could start students who are the brightest and test well, and just try to cram them through it. And guess what? We're not machines where you can just turn the crank and make it happen. Like you have to take into account the human factors and the yes. cultural factors. If someone could have been there to, to find a way to make you feel comfortable, to make you yeah. feel, to loosen up, to make you hungry. I mean, <laughs> they could have found silly motivations or ways to, to make you hungry that I bet you anything, you would have then been much more motivated instead of sort of being dry or, or trying to grind too much. Yes, yes. I, I think it's a lot about that and a lot of that I really did not believe in myself and I like, mm -hmm. yeah, like, and I always internalize anything that I didn't know. Like if somebody mm -hmm. knew a problem and I didn't know it, like it, it must not be that the problem is hard. It must be that I'm not good enough. Like always right mm. um, like i still do it i try not to but i still do it like you know all these years past then you're crying out for a, a mentor to we need different types of mentors and in that situation you need yeah. a mentor who's just a a constant uh source of positiveness of yes. reassurance of, yes. of just saying you can do it you can build it up and actually this is uh, usually, I think more in terms of students for these podcasts, but as a parent myself and as a teacher myself, I mean, this is also for, for parents, teachers, others to be on the lookout for students. And actually, basically any student, frankly, can use reassuring, um, yeah. but to build people up, always yep. be looking for chances to, to support and uplift because yes. it makes such a difference. I mean, I, I can just think about this right now as a parent. I constantly feel like I'm failing. Like, forget the math stuff. Like, yeah. it's it's funny how such little things of people giving little compliments can sometimes make me feel so much better for days. Because I'm like, yeah. all right, I'm I'm not totally miserable. Um, and it matters. It does. Yes, and I think at the very like the very last training I had, the very very last when I it was all already like the the we have a five day five exams. It's a ten day training where you take an exam. Uh, one day, four hours and a half in the morning, and then you train in the afternoon, and then the next day you train five hours in the morning and four in the afternoon for like ten days. Like, this and you is alternate. insane. Yeah, it's it's insane, right? So on that last one uh, of my last year, uh, one of the, I think the only female trainer that we had, uh, talked to me about her doing her dissertation and how it was hard, but she did it, right? So I've never understood that the struggle is a normal thing until then. And it was kind of too late. But she she told me like, yeah, most of my dissertation, I, I wrote it while I was swimming. And I was like, oh, well, I do sports. Like, you know, I do things. Like I walk a lot. I do. And I, I had ideas when I'm doing that. Like all of these other things, all of these other ways of seeing things. Because I, at that, until that point, I thought you're good at math. That means you're all the time in front of a board and just ideas come to you. And like, you never struggle or you do, you struggle for a second, right? So it was nice to understand that um too late because i didn't get yeah well not too late for the course of your whole life but, though yes, to, not, mean, yeah too late for the bit, but definitely something that i still like think about now and that has been useful a lot of a lot of excellent people at whatever they do including mathematics they have great other passions and they yeah. they make sure to and this actually this has been talked about a number of times is efficiency you want to get good at something it's not usually about putting in 18 hours a day you yep. will be terrible at it most likely because you're not giving yourself a chance to reset and to, to go through good normal cycles. A lot better is to spend, I don't know, two to four hours a day and then yep. get away from it the other time. Go find yep. other stuff so that when you work, you're really good, you're super tuned in and then you go and, and live life and have fun. And that, that's a much better way to be productive. Yeah, and also a much better way to be happy. <laughs> but yeah. Well, that's, I don't think there's a distinction. I think if you're not yeah. happy 
Usually, yeah. with there's caveats. It's not perfectly true, but but by and large, if you're not happy and doing good things, you're not going to be productive in the long term. Yep. You're yep. I agree. Burn out. Yep. Definitely. Yes. Okay. So so, so you you finish high school. I finished high school. Uh, well, and, and give us just a little bit about, give me a little bit about the rest of high school. Like you're coming out, you've been doing math forever. Like what was your perspective looking at college? And, and you ended up going in the U.S. for college. So talk about how, how you were looking at your future. So there were, so I wanted to be a doctor, doctor, like a open people, because when I was little, I always liked to open things up and figure out how they work. It was like a treat for my parents. Like, you know, we had those old phones with the little like cord. And at some point they were all opened up <laughs> trying to figure out like how the boys goes through it. Like, like those things like fascinated me. So, because I had a really, really, I had, I went to a very good high school, like my and middle school and high school, the same one. For, so for six years uh, from seventh grade to 12th grade, um, it was really good. It was a private one. I had a scholarship, but it was not one of the fancy, fancy ones. It was just like a, a Catholic school that was really weird because not like Catholics, like you think about it, it was just really weird. But my professor, my calculus professor, had a master's degree from the Moscow University and a PhD from MIT. Taught there for fun because he taught at the university as well. And his final exam for my physics class, because he did, he was, he did physics and, and calculus. I think it was calculus exam. He told us, there's a B, and the B is um, uh, flying in these, like, and he did the the the, the court like oh, I, I'm, I'm gonna forget. But the B is flying like this in this like circular motion, and he has the the two equations for that, the parametric equations for it. And he says at some point t zero, the B has a stroke. Tell me where it lands and describe that movement. Like, what do you mean? This is high school, right? Like, what do you mean describe that movement? He writes it on the board, looks at us, and says, "You have the whole day. See you in like eight hours." And he just left. And like, doesn't tell us, don't talk, like talk to each other, try, you're not gonna figure it out. And he just laughs and leaves. So we all like work together to try to figure it out. So I, even in high school, like I was always like really, it was a very communal thing, mathematics, which was really nice. That's all my good. classes were very communal. So that was really nice. But anyways, I wanted to be a doctor, doctor. Um, but then at that last year in high school in Mexico, you have to choose your area of concentration in all the high schools, not only mine. Uh, and I didn't want to do the biology chemical one, the doctor, which if you're going to be a doctor, you do the biology chemical um, track. And I didn't want to do that because you had to be there on the afternoons. And I was going to the Mad Olympiads on the afternoon for the training. So I was like, yeah, I'll do man and physics. And then once you have a medal for the Mad Olympiads in Mexico, you get this really good scholarship to go to a math institute in Mexico to do your undergrad. So I did mm. three years of my undergrad at that, um, um, the Institute for um, research in math in Mexico, so CIMAT. Um, well, it was really cool. So uh, the first three years of my undergrad were in Mexico in this place where there's a hundred students and a hundred professors. Cool. So this institute with a bunch of like super awesome PhD uh, people, but there were like 13 women out of the hundred students. Well, it's going up at least. It's, it's better than none. Yeah, it's one, <laughs> but it was still pretty tough that way. Yeah, like, yeah. There were not a lot of us. Maybe there were more, but there were really not that many of us. Yeah. And um, that was kind of rough. Uh, and then um, the classes were okay. I think because I was in the Mad Olympiad, most of the first classes were like really easy. And I didn't take it too seriously because I've always been like in my house with like, you know, this is the first time you live alone. Yeah, I was going to say, you were somewhere. more common in Mexico. You do okay. not leave your house. Like in Mexico, if you're, especially if you're a woman, you either go to the university in your city. And if your, uni your city doesn't have a university, it's tough. You don't go to university. So mm. I left four hours away from where I was born to this place um, and lived alone because they, the scholarships in Mexico means you get a stipend because school is free. I mean, mm -hmm. you pay $50 a semester. No, $5 a semester. So I, I mean, it's free. So uh, the stipend wasn't good enough for me to leave. Um, so I didn't have to ask permission from my parents, which was good because they were not, I mean, they were not unhappy, but they're, it's, it's not what my mom envisioned for me. My dad was okay with it and my, yeah. But um, so anyways, I, I'm living there by myself, not taking it seriously. Instead of going to class, I would go play ping pong with my friends. And I, I will say that I thought I was getting really good at ping pong. <laughs> 
I started failing some classes. Some other ones I was really doing really good, but some other ones I started failing. Then I started studying outside the classroom with other um, students and other of the grad students there. And that, that I was okay with. I, I've never been too good at the instruction when the professor is in the board and then just like talking at students. I, I'm not good at that. And yeah. I was not mature enough to, to actually make myself good at that, right? Like, yeah. So I was like not taking it too seriously. And then, but I was doing fine because now at that point I had the confidence of I come from the Mad Olympians and like half of you, these people don't. So I still didn't feel like I was the best, but I was, I have seen this material before. Like some of the calculus stuff, yeah. Like so, it took care of some of the imposter syndrome to some degree. You, you're like, yeah. hey, I've done this for five years. Like, I know I can hack some of this. Yes, um, yes. And and the like, I had, I had the community too, right? Like, and now I am right. You, you knew the other friends. people from it. We work, yeah. So that, that actually, now good. actually, talk about the community for half a second. Was it easier at this point to make friends, or were these friends you kind of already knew from Math yes. Olympiad? Yes. <laughs> okay so that but that's still that's helpful yeah 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 yeah, yeah it was, I mean I've always had friends like after after that bridge program like in my high school I got really good female friends that are, have nothing to do with math that I still talk to and just yesterday I had a super like an hour and a half long conversation with one so like I've had good really good friends for a long long time but math friends that was a little bit dif- different because competitiveness because also something that I tell my female students students especially when you are a man- minoritized population, you start believing the, that there's only room for one at the top, right? Mm. So we all felt like, well, at least I felt like there was only room for one woman to be the smart one. There was room for one woman to be the pretty one, one woman to be the, and I was the one that played basketball. So like, I would, that, you know, like you give yourself a thing and you stick to it because there's no room for anybody else, right? Yeah. So, we should not believe that. Like, and and now I'm really good. I'm not not really good, but I'm really purposeful at trying to make my female students work together and build community. And we have an AWM chapter. We do all of these things so that my female students feel like they can support each other and help each other and learn from each other as opposed to compete with each other, which which is what I felt like we were doing. Yeah, yeah and I, I think that point can be generalized, frankly. And, and yeah. part of that know yourself. I think one part is to know what some of your false narratives are mm-hmm. and, and, and what are false paradigms. Cause what you're describing there, and I think it's very natural. I think it can happen to anyone. I mean, yeah. I really don't think it, yes. it's confined, you know, list your person and, and there can be false narratives and I forget ones coming from outside. I'm talking about, especially ones coming from inside, like ones yes. I believe in by myself, ones you yes. believe about yourself. And, and part of that getting to know yourself is learning how to examine what is the lens through which I'm viewing things? A lot of times we don't, we automatically just start looking like if I've got my eyeglasses on, I'm blind, I have contacts in, but you know, if I wear my eyeglasses, you know, I'm seeing everything through a lens. And a lot of times we forget about that, but Mm -hmm. we have to take time to actually look at the lens and say, well, is that narrative true? Is there only room for one at the top? Let's, let's, this is a math podcast. I can be nerdy. Is this a linearly ordered set or is it a post set where there's a partial order or is it not ordered at all? Like some of these, these things don't apply. Yes. And so get out of these false narratives, wherever they may come from and, yeah. and build better ones. And I actually think there's a, another point that I hadn't thought about much, but I think it is important, which is as teachers, as people who help to set the table for other students, trying to bring that thing. And I guess the part of the reason for the, po- the podcast is to bring these points up, to, to mention this to students and not just once, like just because I'm learning it or we're talking, I'm like, hey, that's good for me to remember. Well, then we got to talk about it. Like yep. each time we, when we see students bring this up over and over because they, everyone needs help with these sorts of things. This pops up all over the place. Yes, yes. And I think, I, I know it's not particular of math, math, but like in math, because most of the students come from being the smartest or like that's the, the title that they put on themselves. And you, they not, they all cannot be the smartest in the room, right? So, yeah. so it, it gets tough when, that's what your identity is. And it gets yes. like, like, yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, I think that that's an essential point is uh, there is 
a little bit of identity that that it's good to have tied to what we've done, not because yeah. that's sort of where our worth comes from, but because it shows that we, we are trying and we are doing things, but that's not ultimately what defines us. So mm -hmm. don't get so wrapped up in what you do because yep. the trouble is if you, start to hit, if you start to hit trouble, you then say, well, I guess I'm not worth as much or I'm not as good or things. And that's, yeah. they're different. Don't, yep. it's a bad game. It's, it's a trap. Yeah. Completely agree. Yep. Okay, so, so you're at this math, and actually, I want to say one more thing about the, um, when students do well, because you mentioned this, there can be a trouble, which you highlighted a little bit of, sometimes you get ahead, and it's like the tortoise and hare thing. Oh, By yeah. being the hare and getting ahead, yeah. you can actually, in the long run, hurt yourself, because yep. then you coast, then you take oh, yeah. it easy. Um, so, some of the people, like, it was very clear when we started, it's a, it's, it was a group of 40 of us that started every uh, year. By the end of it, I think only graduated. It's a five-year five-year program, and you don't take any other class but math. So it, you only take math classes. So like our uh, calculus class is a proof-based calculus class that is kind of like analysis. And by my third year, I was taking algebraic topology, which was a mistake. I never have taken that class. <laughs> <laughs> but like <laughs> you're doing really, really like high-level math, like you know, really, really early in your career, right? Like. Our linear algebra is a Hoffman book linear algebra on your first semester. So it's tough. It's, it's not, yeah. And, and all of the- Actually, and by the way, I love that book. So, so, the, so I, I, I had a, a nonlinear path to math and yeah. um, I was coming from sort of biomedical engineering and I, we were doing modeling stuff and I wanted to know some linear algebra because I had been terrible at it when I actually took it as an undergrad. And so when I kept seeing references, you know, people often reference the canonical book or like the, the really yeah. classic sort of, it's usually like from the seventies or something. And that was sort of my intro to, wow, that's actually some really cool stuff. Was that Hoffman, it's Hoffman and Kuntz, right? Yes, yes, yes. I, yes. I have that white and purple book, um, which is probably really hard to find now. Um, but I love that book. Spanish. Oh, okay. Yep. Um, the one thing I will say this, and I don't know, like uh, what we used to get as a stipend was about $150 back then. Mm -hmm. So if you want to buy a book, that's your whole semester, like you your whole month, right? You cannot pay rent. So they make copies for us. I shouldn't say that, but the professors make copies for us. So we have copies of these books in English or in or or in Russian, some of them, or like or some of them the Spanish, the ones that you can find, or and we just lend books. Uh, back to the to the people right like I had the speedback the big one and the little one and I lent uh -huh. them to the to the yeah but but yeah, that's what also I just want to say Spivak. So it's fun when some of these come up because these are just big things. So Spivak is for, for listeners. If you got, you know, this great nerdy high schooler who wants to go find some stuff. So Spivak is this sort of um, folk hero among math textbooks. Cause is it like, is it a five part series? What's his series on differential geometry? Is it four parts? Yeah, this was calculus. The calculus oh, this is calculus. calculus. So he had, he had a, a a thick one that was calculus that we use for some, uh, first and second semester of calculus. And for the third and fourth that I didn't go to class. That class, I think I showed up once in the whole year. Um, I was working with the TA for that class on little Spivak, the Spivak on manifolds. Yeah, okay. Yeah, little Spivak. That's what I like. And my classes with that graduate student was like, he would tell me, okay, read it and come and present it to me. And I was like, what? But it was great because it gave me like the confidence and it was like one-on-one. -on -one, so I was... I was made sure that nobody's gonna make fun of me because I didn't know things because it was only me and him. So that was really good, yeah. All right, so you, you went three years and then, years. so clearly you didn't do the full five. What, what's the, is it normal to make that jump or what happened? Cause you ended up at Texas, how, how yes. did this happen? So uh, the school in Mexico and uh, University of Texas at Dallas, they have a, a partnership um, and on summer, with the, some of the students from uh, University of Guanajuato in Mexico can come and do like an REU. So um, up to that point in CIMAD, all I've done was pure math. And I was like, I liked it, but I was a lot worried. Like every time my mom would come and visit, they were like, what are you doing? And every time it was like, okay, so you know a donut and a coffee mug, they're the same thing. And my mom was like, so like, you're not having children because you're proving that coffee mugs and like, what is this, right? So I, at the, at the end of those five years, um, students have an opportunity to present their thesis. And for us, that's graduation. Like I never saw graduation as the thing where you walk and you have a thing, like graduation is when you present your thesis, right? And your family is there. And many of the families would come and see the presentation. So I really wanted my parents to understand what I was doing. So when I was trying to look for something, uh, I, I was 
going towards uh, game theory um, because it was more, a little bit more understandable. Mm-hmm. But then I came to the US for that REU. Uh, I got chosen, I think because of my English, because my application was really, really bad, but I spoke better English than most, people, than most of the other students. So um, I came and I was put in a neuroscience lab with a biomedical engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were doing things that I didn't uh, really understand, but they wanted me to model the interaction between two different uh, neurons, mm-hmm. neuronal cells. Um, so I did that. I did not take it as seriously as I should. I will admit that. Um, but uh, while I was doing that, I was like, oh, you can do math and biology because like every time I would see the presentations of the biologists, they're saying words like cure Alzheimer or like understand Parkinson. I'm like, those are things that if I throw at my parents, they'd be like, oh, okay, she's doing more important things than a mug and a, and, you know, and a donut, right? Like, that's, that's good. So I was like, oh, I like this. And I've always liked biology because I wanted to know how people work if you open them up, right? Mm-hmm. And this is a lot safer than me <laughs> becoming a surgeon because that would have been a disaster. So I was like, you know, I could do this. And once I was here, um, I really liked it. I, I, not here in Texas. Um, I really liked it. I was able to think, see that you could do applied math stuff and it could be applied to biology. So I just stayed. Yeah, yeah. So, so we, instead so, of coming back with the rest of the group, I just stayed. And most of my credits transfer. So I didn't have to take any more math classes. I, I think I took three math classes in the rest of the two years that I did mm-hmm. here. Um, yeah, and the rest were like, I also really liked that. I, I took like film and humanities and yeah. I got to take those classes. And I, I think I missed that because Coming yeah, well, you've been doing school. nothing but math for years, yes. and you did yes. the math Olympiad before. You get so yes. narrow, yes. Um, and you get hungry for other stuff. You like, yeah. This is and my cool, high school but- was so good and so well rounded, and it has like professors that were so good at like what they're doing that I miss that. I miss. I had a super good etymologic etymologist, literature and etymologist. Uh, like, uh, don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, word roots, so Latin and Greek so- etymology. Yes, that. So we had literature and that professor, and he was so good. And I miss reading and talking about books. I miss all of these things. So I really enjoyed my two years at UT Dallas because of that, because it gave me that round uh, education thing. Yeah. Was it was it odd at all, or not odd? What was it like? You've been in Mexico your whole time. You moved yeah. to Texas, and clearly, I mean, in Texas, it's not like we're. In, I'm in Ohio right now. You're in Ohio. It, yeah. You know, the the Mexican or Hispanic population is much lower. It, it's still different though. It's not like in Texas, you're in Mexico. What was it like being in the US? Was that something you were like, hey, this is normal? Was that hard to adjust to? What did you think about making that jump? Like, because it's, it's different, it's a different country. Really hard. Yeah. Really, really hard. Um, I had been lucky that I traveled before, okay. but I didn't know that being Mexican was a bad thing. Mm. Um, I will describe the story of my first class in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a humanities class. I was late to class because this lady, even though I had already gone to the math department and one of the professors said that, I, that there were no math classes I could take, like you, you don't know the undergrad and master's classes that we have here. Like, <laughs> this lady told me that I couldn't sign up for anything but remedial math because I didn't have my uh, SAT scores. And oh, I, I didn't want to do that. bureaucrats. No, and then she told me, she told me, uh, I told her, look at all the math class I had. And she said, yeah, but that's math in Mexico and we do real math here in the States. And I was like, okay, fine. So she had to wait until my SAT scores were uh, posted. And then she allowed me to sign up for classes. But one of the ones that I was able to sign up was the humanities class, humanities 100 or whatever. I don't remember the number, but like the very basic humanities. I, I get in three days late, maybe four days late. Um, and the professor is talking about the Exodus, they made them read the Exodus from the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I go in, get in and I see that at the very back of this like a hundred people auditorium, um, they're discussing the Exodus and somebody says um, that they notice how the Egyptians used to overwork the Jewish people so that they wouldn't uh, reproduce. And then somebody else says, we should do that to Mexicans. And then somebody else says, yeah, but cause you look at those ladies and they get pregnant. And then somebody starts talking about how many you can fit in a car. All of this is happening and the professor is not stopping this. I look around and I'm the only non-white person in the room. There's a one black student at the very front and then me. That's it. There's nobody else. And I'm thinking, and this is my first class ever, right? Like, 
I'm just thinking, what have I done? I was in CMAT, like, what did I come here for, right? Yeah. And then when I leave, I was trying to leave on the back doors, but I couldn't because there were a lot of people that I just really needed to leave when the class was over. So I had to leave through the front. And then she looked at me and she said, oh, I'm sorry. If I've seen you, you were here, I would have stopped the conversation. And then my point was like, why would it be so different? Yeah. Yeah. So if I'm not here, that's a, that's an okay conversation to have. Like that actually makes it worse to say that. I mean, better better not to have said anything than to say that. Actually. Yes. And I was like, oh my god. So yeah, it was rough. It was rough. But I think you said it before uh, through this conversation that sometimes what I I'm not competitive, but what I am is really stubborn, and I'm not gonna admit that I made a mistake. So I'm just gonna stick to this like school. I already came to this country, I'm gonna make it work. So I kept going more out of stubbornness than out of anything else. Well, well, but I do think there's something important, like that's terrible, that shouldn't happen. But we also shouldn't let stupid stuff uh, determine what we do, right? I mean, we're gonna encounter stupidity or any number of other bad adjectives. Let's just use stupidity for the moment. We We can attach other adjectives, but let's just keep it at that. Okay, it's gonna happen. There's gonna be stupid things, there's gonna be bad things that happen, and we should try to change them. We should try to make yeah. them not happen, but also don't fight through it. Don't don't let it dictate, um, don't just yeah. quit because someone's an ass. Um, yeah, and what I tell my students when these things happen is find yourself a community where you can vent about these things. Because yes. we're not mm-hmm. probably gonna get to a point where this is not gonna happen. Mm-hmm. These kinds of things still happen to me as a professor. So mm-hmm. uh it's a lot easier to handle it when I can call my Latino or like black friends and be like, guess what just happened to me? And I bent and I get over it and I'm, I'm fine, right? Like, and we fi- figure out ways so that that doesn't happen to our students. Yes, but in the, in the same way, like finding a community where that doesn't, what, where you can bent about those things is really important. Yeah, it, it's again, it's really not so much mentors as friends, just places yes. where you can be open, where, yes, where you, exactly. can, you can uh, take off any sort of, um, uh, inhibitions or not inhibitions, but you can just be yourself. You, you can yes. just, just let it, let it go. Um, rewinding for just a second. So I don't want to forget to make this, this is a tangential point, but, um, I think it's a really important thing on the math front. Um, you talked about taking all this pure math. And I, I think that if you look at the history arc of mathematics, everything came from applications. Like it came from physics. Mm-hmm. It came from trying to understand thermodynamics or electricity. And then what happened is people realized you could make things more abstract. And then all yep. of a sudden you could really do a bunch of stuff. So sort of the turn of the 20th century into the middle of the 20th century, abstraction lets you prove more and more powerful things. But then frankly, I think it's gone too far. And it's sort of natural that things swing different ways. And so yep. it, it got so abstract that you as a student taking, and any number of people taking really good math, you're doing amazing stuff, but it's not anchored in real problems anymore. Or, or you don't know it. You don't know where it comes yes, from. Yes. And, and so I think the back half of the 20th century and increasingly this century are starting are swinging back the other way, trying to get more anchored back in things like mathematical biology or data science or other things. Um, I think it's inevitably going to go back and forth some. But for students, I think it's important to not get too far one way or the other. If all yeah. you do is, is application, but you don't get enough theory, you're not going to be able to do much. But if you just do theory, you're going to float off. I think it, it helps a lot to get anchored. Yeah, no, I think it was uh, it was lucky that I have all this really good background because it helped me uh, with the applied math classes later. Um, yeah, like I, I went to my PhD in UT Arlington because I met my advisor at a conference and I was just going to be done with my bachelor's and go back to Mexico. Like I was done. Um, and he was like, but you can get a PhD in four years. And I was like, no, that's not possible. And I was like, no, yes, you can. I'm like, I'm going to go, go there and I'm going to prove you wrong. <laughs> I'm going to prove you that I cannot. I cannot do it in four years. <laughs> actually, like, wait, wait. Know. Before you jump to that, walk yeah. us to that point. Because because actually you just told us about your first class at UT Arlington. Yeah. So then describe the two years subsequent. How did things shake out? It got much better. I started working at the um, Mad Assistant Center or whatever it's called. I don't remember what it's called, but the, the tutoring place. Um, then I, I met this fantastic group of people at the Mad Circle uh, that would bring like little- Hey, kids. the Mad Circle. Arlington yes. has a really good one. I, I'm thinking of starting one in Cleveland. And, and as oh, I did some research, yes. I, I, I learned about the Arlington one because I think they've got a great math Olympiad now when I searched, like it was the first one. Yeah, Luke, up. I love him. He was my student. Oh, oh was he? All day long. I love him oh, so much. 
Talk yeah. about this actually. Talk about the master because I want to. I'm thinking of starting one. Yeah, this was in in UT Dallas mm -hmm. uh, first when I was in undergrad, uh, and Dr. Tito Andrescu had the math circle there. Mm -hmm. He used to be the trainer for the IMO team for the US IMO team. Mm -hmm. um, so like he has, so he allowed me to give a couple of presentations, and then the parents really liked the way that I presented things, and then they wanted to, me to private tutor the kids. And this is a group of kids that are all like super smart, right? And I, I met Kathy Cordero there, who she has two kids. Um, and they, I started tutoring them and then a group of all of the other ones. So um, it was really, really great. Like I, I was able to do like Mad Olympiad stuff with these kids, right? And they, they're so smart. They were like, I think they were like seven and nine, nine years old when I started with them. So like talk about young kids, right? Um, and then, um, so the rest of the, the, the two years were good because I, I had this math Olympia thing, math uh, circle thing. Actually, just say what a math circle is too, because I, I haven't talked about it at all here. And it's just for people who've never heard of them, I'd never heard of them until fairly recently. Just what are they? So I'm super bad at history, but they started somewhere in Eastern Europe. Okay. And they're like places in which you uh, talk math for fun, right? It's not necessarily like, uh, some have a curriculum, but it's not necessarily like a very fixed curriculum. So they invite like in the Dallas one, we had like a bunch of kids from the Dallas Metroplex. So it's a huge Metroplex. In, in. So all the kids would come from Frisco, Plano, all of these places. And uh, on the Saturday, and they would have two hour lectures. So there was like somebody that would come and talk to them. Like I remember, I think I did that with them. Like I brought like little pipe cleaners and they made surfaces and we talked about minimal surfaces. So mm -hmm. like we sank them in like, like soap and talked about that. I, I used one of my classmates, uh, Edgar uh, Duenas. Uh, he did a, in CIMAT, he, did, he had his dissertation on fair um, divisions, like dividing inheritance. So mm -hmm. I designed a, a workshop for the kids where they would divide candy uh, in a way that it was fair and everybody thought that they got the biggest part, or at least the, the right part, but, the, mm -hmm. but even better than everybody else. So, <laughs> so we did that and we went through the math, but we do it. I, I've always done it with a lot of like touching thingies. Mm -hmm. So it's supposed to make math fun for, for students. But then you talk about really complicated things too, right? Like they, they actually do learn really rigorous math, but it always starts with, well, at least in that UT Dallas, it always starts with really um, fun, tangible, touchable things. And you start with the intuition thing and then you go back to the, to the mm -hmm. math. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes. yeah. Okay, so you got involved in these things and you got, you got something of a community. Um, and, and I assume, you, did you also have, I mean, a decent friend network? I mean, because this is helping you to interact with people. Were you able to make, because it sounds, especially for you, friends are a very important thing. Like it's come up yes. recurringly. So um, I was in a bad uh, personal relationship back then, mm. pretty bad one. And okay. uh, my partner back then did not like me to have friends. And I was uh. like, smart enough to allow him to do that. So I had one friend. Ashley mm. Weatherworks, and she was, I met her in my physics class, but she was amazing. And she also put up with a lot of things about me being very childish. Like, mm. like she would like invite me to her uh, house to do um, analysis homework together. And analysis for me was super easy. Like we're taking analysis. I've already taken rooting analysis and you're taking analysis with this, like, like, it was super easy. So I would help her with that. And she would help me with stuff like programming, which I, I was really bad at and things like that. Um, and then she did really awesome things, like made me, literally obligated me to go to conference, to undergrad conference. Mm. And now I like make all my students go. Like, I don't even ask them. It's a good thing that we're in the Midwest with people you say are very polite. I don't even ask them, like, you're going, this is your thing. Um, uh, we figure out how to pay for it, so you're going. So she pretty <laughs> much like grabbed, like drove her car and took me to conferences and had me present stuff, which I did. And then I, that's how I met my my future PhD advisor in one of these conferences. As a as a circle back, so this has happened once or twice, and not this exact one, but not here to exactly give relationship advice, but to some degree, I mean, this is this is to share life experiences, and you want to, you know, people listening to this, who knows what sort of relationships they may be in, on on the list of tells that this may not be a particularly good relationship and one you want to stay in, if someone's intentionally trying to limit you in that sort of sense where it's like you know you can't go and do things you know a, a good uh, partner should be trying to um, maximize things in a certain sense or trying to to enrich not trying to artificially restrict because um, it can have a 
people can be prone to that. That's not, I don't think your experience is atypical in terms of types of things that can happen. And especially in college, with some caveats, go experience things, go make relationships, go, go expand. That's what you're there to, to experience the richness of it. So uh, there, I'll stop, I'll stop unsolicited relationship advice, but I, I no, do no, think no, it no. could matter for people. I think like this experience and I, for people that might be listening to this, that might go through something similar, these experiences are awful and they're terrible. But on the other side of it, I feel much stronger and much smarter. And like, it has, definitely taught me what a healthy relationship is and what an unhealthy relationship is and i don't accept unhealthy ones anymore mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah hopefully we can in a very small way help someone uh, uh exit that sort of process sooner than later um yes, yes. that yes. that would be the aim um okay so you meet your phd advisor at a at a great uh, conference that you were yes. forced to go to and it was a good thing um so talk about the transition from and give us just a little of mindset. So you already had referenced, you said, hey, I was picturing, I'm going to get this, be done, go back to Mexico. Were you thinking, you know, I'm just going to get a job as an academic? Or what, what was your picture before trying to get a PhD? Like, what were you going to go do? So I didn't know what you could do with a math degree. And that summer, I learned that very few things uh, in Mexico. So that summer that I graduated, I had to go back to Mexico because of visa issues. So that's also like another thing that we could talk about forever. But you have to leave the country, even though... I was accepted to a PhD program. I had to leave the country. So I went back home um, and my mom decided that because I had already left, if I wanted to go back, I had to pay rent. So I had to like find a job, right? And it's very few jobs that you can get in Mexico with a bachelor's in math that are not project-based jobs that you have to stick with a project for a long time, right? Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to do that. I mean, I could lie and say, no, I'm not leaving and I take the job for two months and then so, I searched for jobs for forever and I was tutoring and I was doing other stuff in Mexico and I found a job at Starbucks. So I worked that all that summer at Starbucks and that was so much fun. Cause one of the things is everybody was like freaking out that the, I was a mathematician, right? So they would ask me questions and one thing that they asked me and we calculated is how many different drinks you can make with the combinations of a Starbucks, right? So they put it in a thing, in a sign. So in that Starbucks, they had a sign that said, these many combinations for your lattes and like, <laughs> And I had to explain to them all of these things. So it was so much fun. And your, mo- and your mother was so excited. You were finally doing something practical with your math, right? You oh, could calculate no. the Starbucks combinations. And they also were so excited because uh, at night, you have to throw away all the food that was on the thingy. And I would pretend, or I would like take it. And if I found like kids on the street, like begging for food uh, or for anything, I would give them that food, right? But if I didn't on my drive back, when I closed the store, it was for my parents. So they were like super happy. Like they get all this food from Starbucks. They get the drinks that I like bring. No, they were like, they love that job. I think that they still think that that, was, that has been my best job ever. <laughs> <laughs> they had all sorts of jobs before that one, but that one was like the best for them. Yeah. So so you're getting the visa, but you would, at that point you already had been accepted. So you yes. knew what, what was going to happen. You just were yes. waiting on, on administrative stuff to finally clear so you could, you could go. Yeah. Yeah, so then I came came, and my advisor told me that you could take the prelims, the general exams, or whatever they call the, the comprehensive exams, or, well, the... The, the quals, whatever the they quals, call them. Quals, yeah. that's what the people... In, in, uh, you turn into the golden prelims. So the prelims for linear algebra and, and, and analysis, that I could take them before I started, just to see how they were, and it was like a free trial. And I was like, yeah, free trial, why not? So I took them, and I passed them, because CIMAT, so... Because of the really good like background that I had from Mexico, uh, it was really good. So once I passed them, I could start doing research from the beginning. And I think that was his trick. Like you've been finishing four years, um, so I did. Um, we started doing research, and I like he's such a great advisor. What he did. Give was, his name. Just I like I like to plug people. Uh, Christo Kushaharov. Butcher that name probably, but yeah, we call him Dr. K. Um, so he was really, really cool and let me like sit on his uh, meetings with uh, biologists because he's about biologists. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first one he had me sat on, it was about the soy plant and some disease that the soy plant was having. And I don't eat soy and I didn't care. Like I was like, I'm, I don't care, but this is, this is terrible. And then he sat me sat, sit on another one with a biomedical engineer that was uh, working on coding medical implants to maximize immune response. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I was like, yes, this is like medicine. Yes, let's do this. So 
I remember the first meetings. They He's met probably trying to minimize immune response. Um, usually you don't want to ma- you don't want to maximize immune response. You want the opposite. But it- <laughs> yeah, okay. So it was like maximize the effectiveness of the immune response without maximizing the immune response. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I know what you mean. As a former biomedical engineer, it's the one thing I can talk about with a little bit of uh, knowledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, he had me sit on that meeting. It was him, his PhD advisor, who now worked there too, was a Mexican guy, Benito Chen Carpentier. So it was Benito, Dr. Chen, Dr. Cushal, and then the biomedical engineer, Dr. Tang. Um, and they're all talking. Then Dr. Tang leaves and the two mathematicians stay and then they start talking about what model they want. And they said, yeah, we, we're imagining something in MATLAB that looks like a Pac-Man where the white blood cells come around and eat the bacteria and blah, blah, blah. And then as they leave, they say, we'll work on that. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and I told you I was not good at programming. I didn't know what MATLAB was. And I didn't know what research was because I did not take that, on, that summer program seriously, right? So I thought, it's a Wednesday. He wants this for next Wednesday. He wants the whole entire model for next Wednesday. So I'm just gonna go to my office. And I remember like sitting there in my office, Googling what is MATLAB and how do I open it? And for a week, I did not sleep. I worked on this like so hard. And by the end of the week, by the next Wednesday that I had my meeting with him, I had a little like uh, three by three grid with like green, some green dots, like some green squares, like three or four, and then somebody would come and eat them, right? So I thought I'm gonna fail this class because this does not look like anything he described, but it's the closest attempt I can do in a week of not even having opened MATLAB before in my life. And he was so impressed. And I'm like, what do you mean you're impressed? I thought you were gonna drop me as a student because I don't have the model. He's like, yeah, when you have the model, you're gonna graduate with your PhD. And I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, and you can ask questions, and I didn't know you can ask questions. I didn't, I, I didn't know anything. Yeah. So yeah. that's how my research started. Yeah. <laughs> that's not uncommon. We don't know what we don't know. Um, yes. And and that's part of just getting experience, and it does highlight, and this has definitely been a recurring thing: the difference between classes and research. I mean, yes. there, there is a world of difference between yes. them. Um, it's very easy when things have been mapped out and usually they've existed for 50 to 200 or more years. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, now everyone knows the best way to package it. It looks so clean and shiny and perfect. When you're at research, especially in applied research, yeah. oh my gosh, all bets are off. I mean, there's a million ways to go trying to figure out how to attack it, how to even start uh, searching the literature. There's yeah. so many ways to build the model. I mean, the, the complexity is through the yeah. roof. Um, and, and we'll and talk the, about the, it, I'm sure. The freedom, the freedom. <laughs> like, well, that's true. That's the flip side. Yeah. Yeah, that, a, that, lot of, that. a lot of directions to go. Well, here, we're at, we're just over an hour, so we should probably wrap up the life part. So, you know, let, let's spend three or four minutes on a ridiculously large part of your life now, but but walk in a really quick sketch, you know, what was the rest of the PhD like? How, how did it progress? And I know this is ridiculous, but but just because we got to wrap up the life part, you know, how, how did you go from that first week to then, you know, being finished and actually learning how to be an applied mathematician? PhD was awesome. Like, I had a really good, like, the bunch of friends, a bunch of Latino friends. We had like dancing uh, sessions, um, the working, we, we got together to do homework. It was just really good. Um, then um, by the end of my um, my PhD, like I, I got my dissertation done and we talk about that math some, all the time. And, uh, by the end of it, I told, I my family's in Mexico, right? So I, I could work anywhere, but I knew that going back to Mexico was not an option most probably because the people like that graduated with me in CIMAT that did make it there had all gone to like the Ecole Polytechnique or Harvard or like whatever. So when they come back with a PhD like that, they're gonna get the good jobs. Like there's no way I'm gonna get the good jobs like against them, right? And I wanted a job that you could spend a lot of time with students, like mm-hmm. that you could teach. I did apply to the, you know, the matjobs.org from yeah. the AMS. Yeah. yeah, I applied to all the jobs. Like, not one. That's like not atypical. Yeah. yeah. So 350 jobs applied to all of for, them. For listeners, so there, there's something called math jobs. And basically, as you're coming up on, on being done, let's say your PhD, your postdoc, or whatever it is, I mean, basically every math job that's academic, and, and many that aren't, are posted there. And, you know, that, that's where people apply. And so, you know, I, I don't know if people usually apply to all of them, but they apply to a lot. They I apply like to a huge them. number. Yeah. I, <laughs> It was funny. And then I did get a few postdocs that were not there. Like uh, one, 
one the, the I think the most tempting one was uh, Fred Fred Hodgson Research Cancer Research Center in Seattle. Mm-hmm. I would that would have been fantastic, and I really wanted to do that one. I wanted to do that one more than anything else, but I wanted my papers to be fixed. Like I wanted to get a green card, and you cannot get a green card through a postal. So mm-hmm. it's, so I was like, okay, permanent, and I got four offers for different like tenure track jobs. And when I came to the interview in Youngstown, it snowed. And like, I got to see like the Rosbell and all the abandoned houses. And for some reason I thought that's really, really cool. That's a, this is a place where I can make a difference and there could be things being done, right? Like it's not a, like one was in Dearborn mm-hmm. and Dearborn is really pretty, but everything looks really pretty and pretty done, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, one was in Clarkson. D- Dearborn's in Michigan, yeah? Dearborn is in Michigan. Yeah, outside of Detroit. Uh, yeah, outside Detroit. Um, then the other one was in Potsdam, New York uh, City, which is Clarkson University. Mm-hmm. Very pretty little town, but also like I was single by that time. And like, I was thinking like, I'm going to end up in a town of 10,000 people. And like, I yeah, that, that's just not gonna, I mean, wasn't part of my goals, but at least my mom's goal is never going to happen. Then, like just never. So, um, and then once in California, that was really, really nice too. But like, I just, yeah, I, I really like the young someone. It just for for oh. listeners, so I, I I I'm in Cleveland, and so I'm a, a lifetime Clevelander. So Youngstown is just down the road from me. So what she's describing, yeah, exactly the same. But but that's my my uh, my lifelong home. So it's fun to hear someone talking about it, seeing it from a very different uh, perspective, just coming from an entirely different place. I love it here. Like I love the weather. I love how many opportunities there is to do things. I love how the people are so resilient because this. This part of the country has been hit like severely by a lot of things, right? And 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 it's a town, a city that was 160,000 people, and now it's like 50 left. So very interesting problems. It's not a growing city; it's a shrinking city. So yeah, so I love it here. Yeah, and I've been here for eight years. That's- this is my ninth year, so since 2012. That's great. All right. Well, only because of time, we're going to wrap it up there. Um, and in the second half, we're going to talk all about the math. I'm sure we'll hear a bunch more about some of the grad school and, and professor because we'll, we'll get into the math. But this has been a delight. Um, so this has been Dr. Alicia Prieto um, sharing so many fascinating things. Um, I hope everyone has enjoyed and please tune in for the math half of the interview. Thank you. Bye. Bye.